the, uh, the year was 1985. The Lakers had just beaten Boston in the NBA Finals, beating Boston for the first time ever, by the way. That summer uh, was the first time I went to Coop Camp. Michael Cooper had a summer camp here at Manzano High School, and that summer, before my freshman year of high school, I learned basketball from all these Lakers that I loved. I learned how to defend someone one-on-one from Michael Cooper. From Kurt Rambis, I learned how to box out, rebound, make an outlet pass. I learned how to throw a no-look pass from Magic Johnson, how to shoot a jump shot from Byron Scott. And most importantly, at least for basketball for me, I learned how to do the drop step from James Worthy. I mean, all of this was amazing. They were all my favorite players, and they're teaching me the game of basketball at this critical time in my life. But the worthy drop step, that would become my go-to move. A move, by the way, that was mostly unstoppable. A move that I would use in high school and in pickup games, in intramurals, in city league. Now, this move predominantly was a post move, a move that you made with your back to the basket. In the move, you set up the, uh, the defender using your pivot foot and some deception. The pivot foot in basketball is vital. Those who know how to establish it and utilize it can be an unstoppable offensive player. Now, in the drop step, you catch the ball and you pivot, swinging your leg around the defender as such. If you can make a big enough step, you pin the defender behind you and there's nothing they can do to stop you from getting to the basket. Now, what's crucial in the drop step is using um, a little bit of uh, deception. And you do that by catching the ball and looking the opposite way of where you intend to make the drop. You do that a couple times. The defender leans to the left as you look left, and then you swing your foot right to get back behind them. You do that a couple times, and then they start going with you and staying centered, and you can fake them out by going the same way that your head went. It's unstoppable. I would spend my young basketball life working and mastering this move that I learned from James Worthy. The drop step. Using your pivot, your drop, and your deception to free yourself up for a shot. Now, our text today is the pivot point of the book of Esther. Today we're going to look at this in three ways. First, point number one is escalation. Second is pivot. And third is reversal. Escalation, pivot, reversal. Last week we ended Esther with uh, Esther taking this risk, her walking in faith with the favor of her God to go before the king uninvited, which could mean death for her. But Esther, clothed as queen, is granted access, and the king invites her to make a request, and she wishes for a party. And at the party, the king asks Esther a second time, what do you wish? And weirdly, she asks for a second party. And we are left wondering why. 
Ultimately, we do not know why, but today, perhaps we start to see why. Now, what escalates the conflict in this story? Well, one of the things for sure is Haman and his pride. Pride is often something that escalates things for us, especially conflict. Haman has been invited to this very exclusive party. We're told today it was just him, the king, and the queen. He's invited to the first party and to the second party. And we're told that he is joyful, glad of heart, in high spirits. He's elated, and why wouldn't he? This is just the sort of thing that fuels him. Haman is animated by power. It it makes him feel alive, come alive. And what speaks to his power more than a private audience with king and queen? But then as he's thinking about this, relishing in it, being elated, he walks by the city gate and sees Mordecai. And this time, not only does Mordecai not bow, but he doesn't even recognize him. He doesn't honor him by standing up. He doesn't acknowledge him in any sort of way. And immediately, Haman goes from inflated, like a balloon losing its air, to deflated. Mordecai, his nemesis, his newman, steals all his joy, all his happiness, wounding Haman in his power. Now, isn't it ironic how someone who is so powerful, how that person can be rendered rendered so powerless by one person not respecting or acknowledging him? It's like Mordecai is the powerful one who can just snap his fingers and steal glory from Haman. And we're told Haman restrains himself. He he doesn't act out against Mordecai, but it makes him anxious. How do you know? He's so anxious that the first thing he must do is relieve his anxiety by calling together his wife and his friends. It's often how we work as human beings, right? We have... We get so worked up, something gets stolen from us, our pride gets wounded, and to relieve the anxiety and the fear that that creates in us, we immediately have to tell someone. He's been invited to an audience with the king and the queen. Mordecai bound to the city gate. He's in the outer, inner court, while Mordecai's in the outer court. And yet this little thing dysregulates him, so much so that he has to find his people, require an audience. He uncorks his anxious heart, recounting to them his day. But notice, where does he start? It starts with boasting. He boasts about his riches, his sons, his promotions, his relationship to the king. Isn't that what we do oftentimes to protect ourselves from our pain, to cocoon ourselves from it? We rest in our boastings, our successes, before we set up our friends to tell about our failures. He says, and now the queen has invited me to a party that she has prepared. I am invited. It's almost like he thinks he's the guest of honor. Of course, in a way, he is. And then notice, but none of this is worth anything to me so long as Mordecai is allowed to live. So anxious, so dysregulated, because his idol, his power, is teeter-tottering. 
And so his friends, his wife, like good friends, suggest build some gallows 70 feet, 75 feet higher, which would have been higher than the palace of Xerxes, as a testimony to his greatness with the intent of using the banquet, he is an opportunist after all, to request for Mordecai's life for his insurrection. He will, he will hang Mordecai on the gallows. Of course, the gallow is a huge spike. So he will impale him. And the intent that Haman has is humiliation, disgrace. Mordecai lifted up for everyone to see. Haman's animated, made alive by this power. And in his fear and anxiety and the words of his wife, he catches this vision. It's an animating vision for him which causes him to spring into action, right? He doesn't even wait for the conversation to be finished. He goes right to the task of having the spike completed. And then he will request from the king Mordecai's life. That's how you know it's his animating vision, because he springs to action. What's your animating vision? I can think of so many times in my life as pastor where I would hear things about people's unhappiness or my uh, not having someone's approval and how much that would cause me to feel dysregulated and to have to go figure out how to fix that. My approval was my animating vision. What's yours? What's so ironic is the book starts with an edict about men listening to their wives and how they should not do that. And our conflict escalates with Haman listening to the words of his wife, which will ultimately lead to his end. He follows it, we're told, without delay. And now for us as readers, that tension, the escalation is fully taught Just as Esther is readying herself for the second banquet and the request, Haman is making himself ready to execute Mordecai. And that leads to point two, the pivot. Here our story takes the drop step. With what? A king who can't sleep. Now let's stop here for a second because in Esther, the primary motif is these feasts, right? Right? The feasts in the book, the book of Esther move our story along. We, we open Esther at a feast. In fact, two feasts of King Xerxes. This is how we get Esther as queen. And then we have Esther's first feast, which we read about yesterday, and the announcement or request of a second feast, which is about to take place. And at the end of the book, the Jews will celebrate two feasts of their own, the Feast of Purim, the Feast of the Lots, And so this forms a sort of chiasm in the book of Esther. Now, a chiasm is a literary device. Lots of people read the Bible, they think everything's a chiasm. But this truly is a chiasm. A chiasm is a literary device that is used to kind of aim our attention as readers. Like a good sandwich, the meat in the middle draws your focus, your attention. Three feasts before, 
three feasts after, 29 mentions of Susa before, 29 mentions of Susa after. In fact, Karen Jobes, the, the biblical scholar, says the expectation is, as readers, that the pivot point is going to be the second banquet. Here we would get the scene, that, like that scene from action movies, that, that moment when the hero faces the villain. Happens in every action movie, right? That's the expectation. But instead, now hear me here, the writer of Esther is wanting us to see the pivot place isn't the highest point of tension, it's the scene right before that. And why? Why is the author doing this here? Taking away, why, why is the author taking away the focus on human action? In fact, the most powerful person in the world can't control what's about to happen. And now the second most powerful person can't as well. Another power, the author is saying, is controlling the reversal of this destiny. And here we see the king just so happens to not be able to sleep. What what steals away your sleep, beloved? For some of you, it's nothing, Brian Whippo. What wakes you up in the night? What keeps you awake? And what do you do to go back to sleep? My remedy is tried and true Seinfeld. Like really, like the net knows, it's like 30 seconds, that thing comes on and I'm asleep. What? Oh, wow. Matt hates Seinfeld. Well, the king chooses what to make him go back to sleep? His life story. The first thing that happens, sleepless, and then the next, a passive thing. A page just happens to fall where? To five years earlier, where the chronicler reads how Mordecai thwarted the assassination attempt on the king. Did you ever do this? Like, college, high school, you had this decision to make. Should you date this girl or not? You, you needed a word from the Lord, so you played the mystery Bible game where you took a physical Bible and you just let it open up, and then you kind of closed your eyes and you went, right? Have you ever done that? There was a man who did this. I don't, I'm, this, is, this is tired and old, but the Bible fell open to Judas bought a field, and then he went out there and hung himself. The befuddled man... I better try this again. And it falls on the next verse, go and do likewise. Have you ever done that? Like like when you're desperate for something to happen, when you're desperate for direction, to to be in the know of the why, why did this happen? What do you do? Now, Now hold that for a minute. The annals are open and Xerxes hears this Wait, 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 what What did you just read? And he asked, was this man honored for this? No, no, sir, nothing. And remember, he was not elevated because in the wake of the assassination attempt, Haman was. And we hear, we read the king is mortified. It's been five years. Now, this is not something that would happen in Persia. It's vital for keeping the peace to honor those who honor the king. And so the king seeks to rectify it. And this is the pivot. 
the, the sleeplessness and then opening up the book to Mordecai's act and it's the hidden hand of God, his providence. In fact, this is what we're seeking to take hold of when we drop open our Bibles and point to that verse. It's hidden, only evident after the fact. And this is the pivot point of, our, of the book of Esther. And where does it reside? Insomnia, grabbing one book instead of another? Telling us, telling you and I, another power is controlling the reversal of destiny. The Greek translation of the text reads, the Lord took sleep from the king that night. And this leads to point three, reversal. It just so happens, as the king is reading this, he's seeking someone in his court to do something about it, and who appears? The third coincidence of the night, Haman appears coming at once to secure permission to execute Mordecai. In the middle of the night, he can't wait. He's so eager. Haman, too, can't sleep, but for different reasons. And even this is guided by the providence of the Lord for such a time as this. Do you see this? The such a time as this is the outworking of the Lord who makes the lot always land on seven, who orders the steps and the sleeps of these two men. Here they collide in their sleeplessness. Now, for those of you who are woken up in the middle of the night or can't sleep, we're told in the Bible God gives sweet sleep to those that he loves. Why am I awake? Why can't I sleep? What might God be doing? What might you be invited into in the night when you can't sleep? What, what is God inviting you into out of love when you can't sleep, beloved? Certainly it's to cast all those cares upon him to find him a present help for your fear and your anxiety. Now Haman comes just as the king has learned of his oversight of Mordecai. Now, if you're reading this, maybe this jumps, jumps the shark. If you've heard that phrase, it's when a movie's plot line and the res resolution are a little too convenient. The, the love story where the couples learn they're meant to be together and not with those others, and suddenly they're together and getting married. There's this magical reversal that happens in the story, and you're like, man, that, that jumped the shark. Well, our story jumps the shark. And, and here's the thing. God's providence often does jump the shark, friends. Haman is here. The king is awake. Perfect, the king thinks. I can talk to him about this oversight. What, what timing for me to request Mordecai and his life to be honored, to be taken. A comedy of errors. Haman, what can be done for the man the king delights to honor, omitting the name that he intends to honor, just as Haman omitted the name of the people he sought to destroy? As they talk, Haman thinks the king is talking about him. Who else could it be, he thinks, but he's actually talking about the one Haman intends to impale on this massive spike. 
So Haman prescribes the greatest honor, thinking it's for him. Let this honor be given to the unnamed honoree. Let him wear the king's robe, ride the king's steed. Let him be honored like a triumphing general ridden through Susa, a parade in his honor. And you see the machinations of Haman's heart, what he wants, what he desires, even as he has the highest position, even as he possesses the signet ring. He has the the authority to, to, to make law. He's been invited to two private banquets, and yet it's never enough. Never, ever, ever enough. All this excitement of his own honor has made him forget why he came to the king in the middle of the night, right? Like, isn't that how it is for us sometimes when our names are mentioned? What? What? That's Haman. It halts him, stops him in his tracks. He forgets about Mordecai and can only think about his honor. What halts you? What stops you in your tracks is your your name, your position, your respect, your glory. When the king hears Haman's suggestion, he's so pleased with himself. That's a great idea, Haman. Go at once. Reversal. Go at once. Get the robe, the horse. Do just as you suggested for Mordecai the Jew. Do not neglect anything you've recommended. And imagine the the crestfallen face of Haman, the anguish. He must take the king's robe and not swing it around his own shoulders, but drape it over Mordecai's. He must take the king's horse, and instead of riding on it himself, he must walk in front of it, leading it through the streets with Mordecai mounted. He must herald every step of the way. This shall be done to the man whom the king delights to honor burning inside the whole time with the thought that he should be on the horse and not Mordecai. And perhaps most painfully, he must listen to the crowds in the open square cheer and acclaim Mordecai the Jew, whom he despises more than anyone else. How quickly things can change. From, from sackcloth and ashes to royal robes, from, from not rising to either greed or bowing in respect to now being lifted up on the king's horse, from words of disgrace to words of honor. And Haman, subject to being the foreman of such a spectacle, runs home, tail between his legs, his head, we're told, covered in grief. See the reversal. As he tells the story to his wife and his friends, Even they sense something supernatural happening outside of Haman is ordering all of this, telling him, you will fall before him. It's amazing, right? The invisible hand of God at work. Coincidences are just God's way of remaining anonymous. He's there at work. 
the providence leading to this pivot, this reversal, the drop step, looking one way, the foot drops around the other way, Haman joyful and glad in 5.9, covered in grief in 6.12, wife and friends telling Haman he will prevail in 5.10-14, and then they tell him he will, that Mordecai will surely prevail in 6.12-13. Haman intent on executing Mordecai in 5.14, now forced to exalt him in 6.4-11. All of this flipped. Why? Because the king could not sleep. You see, in the polytheistic uh, religion of Susa, Xerxes, human affairs could be flipped if one god overcame another god. Fate was capricious because one could never be sure which god or goddess was in control of you and your situation and your circumstances. And what is Esther saying to you and I about God? How he rules. God isn't capricious. He doesn't change his mind, his decrees. God hasn't over, just overpowered Haman's gods. It isn't some sort of tug of war. Instead, God rules history based on his promise, his word. Not circumstances, but by his decree. Circumstances can seem one way, but God is still ruling like we read in our Confession of Faith this morning. The reversal, moved by God's providence, his decree, his his all-wise and powerful preserving, as the Catechism says, for Israel, despite their location, being away from Jerusalem. God's promise made to Israel still stands. His covenant abides. The, The Agagites will fall under God's judgment, just like he promised. And God uses what? Ordinary events to realize it. Second causes, the the decisions of less than perfect people fulfilling his promise. Now, Now, God works miracles acting as first cause, but God works through the ordinary, through second causes. God delivers his people through a sleepless night, a late night reading intended to bring about sleep. He uses Mordecai's stubbornness and Esther's beauty. I want you to think this morning, how did you end up here? How did you come, if you believe in Jesus, to that knowledge? What chain of events happened in your life? Consider how God guided and directed you, how how you came to meet and marry your spouse, why you're living in the place that you are, what circumstances led you to your current job, God's care, protection for his children seldom comes by mighty miracles, but constantly, unexplainably, it's through the unfolding circumstances of each day as one thing leads to another, and God's providence directs our steps. Frederick Buechner says, there is no event so commonplace, but that God is present within it, always leaving room to recognize him or not to recognize him. But all the more fascinatingly, because of that, all the more compelling and all the more haunting. Even tragedy, wrong place, wrong time, wrong thing. God is working to fulfill his purpose. In a recent post entitled, Life in the Fog of the World, 
Orthodox priest Stephen Freeman examines threads of history in a remarkable way. He says, how do we tell the story of history? The thing we call history is not a record just of past events. It's a narrative, a story. A story that seeks to make sense of the events that have occurred. It is the story that we use to shape the events we relate to this thing called history. Properly speaking, Christians don't believe in history. The the Christian faith possesses a belief in providence. That is, that the events that unfold through time are guided, shaped by God himself towards his desired end. If there is a Christian history, then it is telling the events in terms of the story God is speaking. The, The Christian story is utterly and completely one of divine providence. The Christian story is that single point of history, indeed, that single point of all things, found in the death and resurrection of Jesus Christ. Through the death and resurrection of Christ, occurring at a measurable, definable moment in history, it describes both the beginning and the ending of history. Now, what Freeman draws in here is an exceptionally hopeful truth. Namely, hear this, you don't have to make sense of the things that you see so long as you keep your gaze fixed on Jesus and the cross. The words of the writer of Hebrews comes to mind, reminding those who are running that the only way runners succeed is by having their eyes transfixed on the cross. That place where he spoke all things into being endured such a contradiction of sinners against himself. Think about that. The place of the cross is the place of God's beloved contradiction, the the drop step of all drop steps, wherein what looked like defeat was actually deliverance, working in and through death. The cross is the apex of God's revelation in human history. It's the stage upon which the creator of all things should be chiefly seen and known. It's the point where all of history converges. It's the thread of God's sovereignty where he masterfully weaves the course of human history, coloring, like Josh talked about this morning, coloring each page in a wonderful crimson hue. It's the annunciation of his word of promise, his grace so amazing. And that gift of grace calls for what? Faith, hope. Despite all evidences to the contrary, Dale Ralph Davis says, when the wash is all in and the dust settles, there will not be anything that God has not used to shape us into the likeness of his son. Now, that's a hard reality to to accept as we go through the history. It's difficult even if you have the cross. But it is only in and at the cross that that hopelessness can be transfigured into hope. It's only at the foot of that despicably beautiful tree where what is seen 
is most glaringly not what is or what will be. It's the place where history's defeat is camouflaged, hidden as eternal victory. It's the site of the Lord's providential fulfillment and his prodigal reconciliation of all things to himself. The story of Mordecai and Haman is pointing to this. The king will vindicate Mordecai. His loyalty will be rewarded, and so will ours. But not our loyalty, Jesus, who was loyal all the way. And when our lives are bound into his, united to his, one with his, his loyalty is our loyalty, and the king delights in you. Now, who knows what circumstances God is lining up in your life that you can't see right now? Who knows what decisions will become hinges in his providential hands? And who knows, as hard as it can be to accept it, what disappointments, what tragic events, what closed doors or open doors or trying situations God might be using in ever so subtle ways to work his life into your life. God's providence leads to reversal. Now, I want to end quickly with two applications. First, I want you to embrace this mantra. We used to say it at Men at the Cross, I am not God, and I am not in control. God's providence allows you to step into this, to step into life and to receive and to not have to be agents of your own making, to trust that God is moving you along. Even if you make the wrong decisions, that God can take that and make it good for you. Second, don't neglect the mundane. Don't neglect the small or the mundane. Sleepless nights, don't neglect them. Warfield says, in the infinite wisdom of the Lord, of all the earth, each event falls with its exact precision and into its proper place in the unfolding of his divine plan. Now listen here. Nothing, however small, however strange, occurs without his personal love and ordering, without its particular fitness for its place in the working out of his purpose. Entrust your life to the God who in his providence creates reversals, means our mundane become alive with potential, pregnant with the presence and the providence of God. Let's pray. God, we, uh, we thank you for your providence which guided sinful men and women like us to nail Jesus to a cross. Cursed is anyone who hangs on a tree, your word says. 
And yet it is in Jesus hanging on that tree, becoming cursed for us, the Holy One, the Perfect One, the God, the Creator, hanging on that tree that our life can have hope, resurrection, reversal. And so when we are tempted to doubt your goodness or your power, bring our eyesight back to the cross and the vindication of resurrection, that you did not spare your own son for us, so how will you not freely give us all things? That because Jesus did not remain dead but is raised, how will all of our life not end in reversal? Bring us back to that again and again and again and again and again, we pray. In the name of Jesus, the Christ, the anointed one of God, we ask. Amen.